Welcome to the Ready Yeti Podcast, where we tell the story of startups in the outdoor sport industry through the voice of their founders. Hey all, and welcome to another episode of the Ready Yeti Podcast. Today we're sitting down with Scott Bailey, the founder of Path Projects, among several other brands, Split Apparel, Super Footwear, and Crew Apparel. Scott, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks, Matt. Glad to be here. So for listeners who aren't familiar with Path Projects, how would you best describe Path Projects and what it does? Uh, Path Projects is a specialty running apparel brand that's in a consumer direct model. We focus on men's and our foundation products are shorts and base liners. We also make tops and hats and other accessories. Awesome. Um, so I know that obviously, you know, you've had a lot of other you know, projects before path projects. Um, what's your background in, uh, I know you started in skating, but how did you end up, um, starting a running company? Yeah, it's a long road. I, um, I grew up like a lot of kids, um, skateboarding, uh, BMX, motocross, like anything in that genre of action sports before it was called action sports. And uh, from there, I, I went to college and kind of put away all my fun games that I used to do in sports. And, uh, and I got into engineering and I was working in the Silicon Valley. And I did that for about seven years. And during that time, I met some friends that had a backyard mini ramp. And I started skating again and got to know them. And they were in college at the time at San Luis Obispo in Cal Poly. And uh, I left for Europe with my engineering job um, to work there for a few years. They left school, started, uh, founded the company Split, which was an action sports apparel company, kind of in that first skate, snow, surf time period in the, uh, in the early, probably... They started probably in about 1989, 1990. And I started um, sending them money to help them because they were just trying to get it going. And they would send me a piece of paper back that said I own part of their company, 5% here, 5% there. And when I moved back from Europe in 1991, I started helping them. And the idea was move to Southern California and help them for a year. And uh, we ended up having that company together. I became a partner. We had that company for 13 years. I learned the apparel industry. I was the uh, president and CEO after about five years. And uh, we built a nice little company and sold it to one of our partners. And, um, and then I went from there to write the business plan and start one distribution, which became Crew Denim and Super Footwear and had that company for 13 years, was a CEO. And we sold that company about five years ago. And uh, during the end of my time, I guess the last four or five years with One Distribution, I got into running. Um, at first, it was just a way to stay in shape. And when I was traveling a lot to different countries, um, it was easy to bring a pair of running shoes. And um, I lived about eight miles from my house, from my where my office was. So I started run commuting and bike commuting. And... Uh, then from there, it was like adventure running and trail running, and I just got more and more into running. And I guess what I what I developed from the run community, run commuting, and uh, and some of the adventure racing was that I just couldn't find a pair of shorts that I liked, and uh, that was kind of the 
you know, I had known a lot about materials from snowboarding and uh, surf trunks. And although I wasn't a product developer, um, being in the business for 25 years, I had learned a lot from sitting in a lot of design meetings, a lot of product development reading meetings. And I knew that we could, um, I knew that there could be a good running short with, um, you know, for me, the pain points were the pockets, not having the right pockets to carry the things I needed to run when I was commuting. Uh, the materials, there wasn't uh, materials that were using uh, mechanical stretch. They were all using a uh, stretch with Lycra and with um, Lycra and spandex, which absorb water and break down and are heavier. Uh, and just just the overall design, I had chafing issues with the liners. And, uh, and I just couldn't imagine with so many people running why someone hadn't really put a lot of time and energy into developing a really good running short. So that was the idea, and it was just an idea in my head. And like all entrepreneurs, you think about it constantly, and you're kind of writing the business plan in your head. And when One Distribution sold in 2015, I left the company as CEO. And in the back of my mind was creating a running apparel brand, like a next level running apparel brand. And that was really where the how PATH was born. My apparel experience and launching PATH was not a, uh, a, a road that I planned on or probably my mom planned on or anyone. But um, and at some points in that, I, I kind of said, if I knew what I was getting into, I never would have got into it because <laughs> there's definitely a lot of learning curves and bumps and bruises you take along the way. But now, when I look back, it all went the way it was supposed to go, and I'm really happy that I took that turn in my career. Yeah, I mean, it, it seems like you already had, you know, you already started several companies. You you know how to kind of shape something that you want. Getting into a completely new hobby and looking at things that like probably haven't really changed in years, it's probably easy to be like, wait, why are you guys still doing this? I know, um, you know, obviously, as I mentioned, as you talked about yourself, you have these other projects. Uh, you had plenty of experience in the apparel industry. Was there a lot of crossover? Was it like second nature kind of starting path projects, like doing all the steps, you know, or was there some kind of serious learning curve going from, you know, the action sport industry to more honed in on the running side? Uh, there, there, you know, some things that, that I learned along the way that were super helpful. And, um, for me, one was, you know, a really detailed business plan. My first company, I really didn't have a business plan. I just joined some friends that were already starting it and we kind of made it up as we went along and made some errors along the way that we had to fix and some you couldn't fix. And my second company, um, you know, we wrote a detailed business plan. And inside that company, when we launched Supra, we made a really detailed business plan. And um, so I knew that like one of the keys was really taking that first year and writing a really detailed business plan. For me, that makes all the sense. And then having people look at it and vet it and make sure that all my assumptions were right. Uh, and so a lot of it was easy for me. The part that was a huge learning curve was going from a traditional wholesale business to a direct-to-consumer business. I, I was a little naive in thinking that if we made really good product, people would come find us and business would blow up right away. 
and that wasn't the case. It's um, it's a very noisy cyber world out there, and it takes a while, no matter how good your product is, to get it in front of people and start building trust and people to know it. So that that was my biggest learning curve was actually the the customer acquisition and getting in front of your customer the right way and um, finding a way that made sense for your brand and that you were getting the customers that were actually looking for your brand. That makes sense. Um, why the specific push towards direct to consumer versus like cutting out, you know, brick and mortar altogether? Uh, you know, the, the hardest part when I was building the business plan in my head and what really held me back from launching the company was the price point was that, you know, if you take a normal pair of shorts that an athletic company makes uh, running shorts, it probably costs them $10 to make that product. And then they sell it to the retailer, let's say at $20 and the retailer sells it for $40. So you've got a short that costs $10 to make and it's selling at retail for 40 and that's pretty normal. I knew that using the fabrics we wanted to use um, from Japan, that we use Torre fabrics from Japan, they cost about three times as much as a normal uh, fabric that they're using in a normal running short from an athletic company. And, you know, adding pockets, every pocket, every zipper has a cost, you know, whether it's about a three or four dollar um, cost to make per zip per pocket. That's why most shorts have one. Um, and I knew that some of the other, the waistbands, the quick dry waistbands, some of the stuff we wanted to use were just more expensive. So where a normal running short would cost $10 to make, ours costs about $24 to make. So, you know, some of that is because we're lower volume, but the majority of it is the materials we use. So making a $24 running short and selling it at wholesale for 48 would mean that retail it's a hundred dollar running short. And I know that some people would pay a hundred dollars for it, but I wanted to make it more accessible to more people and make it something that, you know, didn't have competition at that price point. So that's why we use the consumer direct model is, is that we can sell our running short for basically what it would be at wholesale. So our, our shorts are 47, $48 in that range. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, taking the whatever, what you would spend on actually putting the product out there, you could make a better product. People will find it. You know, you want customers to come back. In Consumer Direct, you know, a one-time customer is expensive. You know, a customer that comes back seven or eight times and becomes a fan of your brand for life, then it's, it's worth the customer acquisition cost. And the other thing is, is that, you know, running stores, don't primarily focus on running apparel. They're really focused on shoes. Mm -hmm. So trying to get running stores to carry different types of product and have a good display of it um, is a really difficult um, spot to be in. And same with sporting goods stores is that they wouldn't necessarily carry our product. It would be very hard to find enough retailers to carry what we're doing because it is different and it's special. Yeah, I mean, even, like across gear, gear across the board, it seems like, um, you know, when you walk into any kind of store, there's always incentives for reps to push something or another. I guess it kind of makes sense that you have more control of how and who uh, is seeing your products. There, There is. I mean, especially a lot of buyers, once you get out of running stores, 
a lot of the buyers that buy it for retail don't really do the sport. Yeah. So they're buying based on maybe what color it is. They're, they're not really understanding the technology. You know, they're, they're kind of, they have to buy so many different categories. There's so many different things that they aren't really experts in what they're doing. And, and sometimes they, you know, uh, someone who I really respected at one time, you know, said that, you know, retail stifles innovation because they tend to want to buy the same thing that sold last season. And, uh, and I, I think when you have a consumer direct model and you're talking to a passionate consumer that lives and breathes running every day, when you put out something and explain it, it makes sense to them automatically if it's, if it's the right thing. So I think you get that direct connection with your consumer and direct feedback and you know they're yours there's not a middleman in between kind of um uh you know taking your message and distorting it what it is so i, I think it's a great model it's just um it, it's got its own challenges yeah. and uh like anything in its own benefits but i think it's a it's a great model for now do you think, I mean, across the board, you know, we've been seeing more and more direct-to-consumer uh, brands. Um, for me specifically, I noticed it in the snow industry. Um, I mean, mainly because that's where, you know, my dial is kind of set to, uh, especially this time of year. But with, you know, COVID coming up and becoming more of an, a challenge just to actually get people to into stores. And do you think that direct consumer as a model is like something where outdoor industry, outdoor gear across the board is headed? Well, I think that, um, I think brick and mortar is important. And I think that um, having a store where you have um, really good salespeople helping people, a lot of people want to try things on. I think that you can't replace a retail store and what it does. I, I think that um, you'll see more brands, and it happened with COVID, a lot of brands that were primarily brick and mortar are putting a lot more energy into their um, direct-to-consumer and trying to offset those um, retail stores. Plus, with what's going on in retail, you know, there's going to be a lot of malls closing, a lot of retail closing. People are getting used to buying stuff online. So I think the percentage will shift to more online. I think that you'll get... Um, you know, people trying to do things. I think, I think it's just going to evolve. I think what was going to happen, I think COVID is speeding up everything. It kind of put everything in. What may have took, taken five years to make the change is probably going to happen in the next 18 months. So it's definitely interesting to, to watch it. Um, yeah, it seems kind of across the board, everyone's sort of on their toes. There's this weird volatility going on. Kind of yeah, weird. and I think that there's also a big difference in direct-to-consumer models. Um, mm -hmm. There's some brands that are direct-to-consumer, but they're not necessarily passing the savings on to the customer. They're using that double margin to acquire customers and mm -hmm. to give you know free shipping, free returns, 20% uh, off, where they're, they're really just using double margin to um, have more margin to play with to um, to get customers, but they're not necessarily passing on higher quality product or mm -hmm. any, any savings on to someone. It's just that it's a mode for them to, um, to get there and, and get higher margin in some cases. So, I mean, even a retailer that any brand that's selling online, but also has retail stores is really picking up double margin when they sell online because they're selling it, you know, they're, if that cost for that short is $10, and they're selling it at retail for $40, they have to sell it on their site for $40 too. 
So um, there is different, not all consumer direct is equal. Getting to the more technical side of things with um, path projects. um, I know that a lot of the inspiration for the design of the uh, running shorts came from just you wanting a specific product and not seeing it. Um, And it seems like it really caught on, but what, went into actually developing the product outside of the initial concept when it went into the uh, testing and kind of the R&D? Yeah, well, um, for us, when Eric and I decided that we were going to do this, you know, the first step was materials. So whether it was the shorts or the liner or the T-shirts we were making, we went to a lot of fabric shows. We met with some of the top mills in the world. We looked at other products that were out there. And it kind of started with finding the people that we wanted to partner with, which I said, like in our shorts, it's Torrey of Japan, who makes all of our nylon fabrics. And um, and then we use a different um, supplier out of Taiwan, a high technical supplier that supplies all the stuff, all the fabrics for our base liners. And also our shirts, we use a, in our shirts, we use a, um, a blend that's a synthetic blend, but it uses tinsel, which comes from eucalyptus trees. So it has natural um, odor, antimicrobial properties, natural quick dry. Um, Again, we wanted to find the best possible products, uh, fabrics that were out there. And then once we had that, then you start drawing up the shorts and the different things and where the seams have to be and where you want pocketing and kind of come up with those sketches. And then from there, you know, you're finding the best factories to sew them. So our shorts are made overseas in a factory that makes high-end outerwear that's really used to dealing with high-end fabrics and how to sew nylon. Unfortunately, there aren't those factories here in the U.S. Um, our baseliners are sewn here in the U.S. Our shirts are sewn here in the U.S. So we found these factories, and then we start developing the prototypes, and then we test, and we test, and we test. So luckily, um, you know, myself and some other friends are ultra runners that, you know, run a lot of miles. And, and you get to try everything and test it. And through that testing was really how we came up with the idea of having the, the liner separate from the short. And that really came from, you know, testing so many liners that I asked the factory to sew them more as underwear and then having the shorts without liners so that we could test the short with different liner materials, different lengths. And what I found was that the liner I liked in winter when it was cool wasn't the liner I liked in summer. And if I had to put one liner and sew it into a short, it would be some type of compromise for performance for different weather. So that was one of the things. And the other thing I found was that when the underwear was separate, there was way less chafing because then your short is riding on top of your base liner. Your base liner is against your body. There's another, as your shorts bouncing when you run, whether you have something in your pockets or you don't, it's going to move on a run and nothing is rubbing against your skin. So your baseliner, I kind of, we call it kind of independent suspension where the baseliner protects your skin. The short rides on top. Um, There's no, there's no, you know, we went to a lot of detail to make sure that like the draw cord is on the outside. So it's not rubbing on you any place that it could rub. If you're running in dirt, if you're running, 100 miles, 50 miles, if it's humid, if it's rain, every touch point on your body is a um, 
could be a, a chafing area. So we tried to eliminate that and it made a huge difference. And it, it was a little bit of a struggle to educate people. And there's still people that don't understand. Well, you know, and it, it just has so many benefits in that you can pick the right baseliner for the right weather. Um, after you run, you don't have to wash your shorts and your baseliner. You can just wash your baseliner. So your shorts you can wear for, you know, two weeks without washing them and just hang them dry. And it just cuts down on laundry cuts down on the wear and tear on things. It just, it makes so much sense. And I guess for me, I try to explain it to people like, if you go in the snow a lot and you snowboard or ski, you wouldn't want a jacket that had a built-in baseliner in it because, you know, weather conditions change, what you want to wear for that day changes and and it would be uncomfortable, you know, having things separate works better. So it, it was, um really through all that testing and innovation that we came up with the product. Um, it, it, we, we, it, I, I call it, it's more of a craft. We're not, we're not making products seasonally that changes every season and we're constantly trying to reinvent the wheel and we make some mistakes. It's really about getting it right. And then really, really taking the only time we make a change is if there's a, you know, a clear slight change we can make to improve the product. But, you know, I look at running product as a tool, whereas once you find something that works for you, you want to go back and buy it. And that was one of my frustrations with shoes. So you find a shoe you like, you go back six months later, they've changed the shoe and it's completely different. Then you start all over finding that shoe that works for you. And uh, I didn't want that to be with our, our running apparel. I wanted it to be like, if you get something, you like it. You go back six months later, you can buy it in the same color, you can buy it in a different color, but you know it's going to fit the same, wear the same and have the same function that it did. Definitely makes a lot of sense. I can't tell you how many times I've really liked something, you know, wear and tear will burn out, whatever it is, you know, a pair of shoes, pair of boots, anything like that. And then they, there's always like this weird seeming, seemingly like obsessive need to always change for the sake of change. And if you have something that works, you know, why not keep it? Being in this industry for a lot of years, I, I know why it happens, you know, because yeah. I've, I've lived it. You get designers, you know, designers want to design, especially there'll be a new designer. He doesn't want to design the same thing that the last guy did. He wants mm -hmm. to change it. Um, you get retailers that when you show them the same thing, no matter how well it's selling, they want something different that tells a different story. Uh, it's, it's, you know, between the retailer and the designers, it's, it's really hard to keep something the same, even if it's really good. <laughs> yeah. It's almost harder. <laughs> uh, it kind of makes sense. I guess that's for like what you were even mentioning about Path Project specifically, you know, the different, um, wanting different, um, I guess, base uh, layers for, um, you know, each, you know, it's hot out, it's cold out, that kind of thing. Keeping that, those separate pieces of customizability, I guess, is the perfect way around that. Yeah, I mean, for baseliners, we offer three different materials and in some cases, four different lengths. So you can get a three inch inseam, a five inch inseam, an eight inch inseam or a full length. And then three different materials, one that's made for really hot weather, one that's kind of all around and one that's great in like wet weather or cold yeah. weather. So you're getting that variation. And if you've got, you know, two different shorts with two different pocket configurations or different lengths, then you can mix and match. You know, you've got like, if you have three different baseliners and two different shorts, you know, you've really got, you know, you got six different combinations or, or more than that. 
actually. Yeah. So you, you can you can really um, customize what you're wearing for that day. Yeah. Um, in the production with you know all the products that Bath Projects has to offer, what has been your commitment to sustainable manufacturing? Yeah, I mean, sustainability is huge for me. Like it's part of my life every day. And uh, and for me, the one thing that I wanted, um, the one thing I thought that was super important that was one of my pain points with normal running gear is that when you're wearing it, you look like you're a runner. Like you scream big logo, bright colors. I mean, it may be functional when you're running, but when you're stopping to get coffee or you're doing something else, you don't really want to be I didn't want to be seen, you know, some of my friends, when I was thinking about the company, I'm like, what do you think of your running gear? And he goes, Oh, if you saw what I was running in, you'd be embarrassed. Like you wouldn't want to hang around with me. And, and that was one of my points was like, I wanted to make something that was multifunctional. So like our baseliners, you can wear them as underwear, you know, our shirts, you can wear them to work. And a lot of people wear them all over. There's not big logos. It's really done in colors that are um, timeless. So for me, when number one is having versatile product, having better product and having less in your closet is a great way of sustainability. Um, the other thing is it's consumer direct and we don't put hang tags. We don't have, you know, we're not shipping it to a retailer. The retailer is getting it at their warehouse, shipping it to their stores, and then you're ordering it online or you're going there and buying it and it gets in another bag and another bag. And, and so the whole idea of direct to consumer is we have one warehouse that we share. It's not our warehouse. It's a 3PL. Uh, our product goes there directly from the factory. It gets shipped in a reusable container, um, recyclable um, envelope. Um, we're trying to cut out all plastic, no hang tags. So, I, I mean, and then we use, you know, Tori of Japan is one of the most advanced fabric producing companies, and they're using all this great water technology in Japan for less water use, less dyes, less chemicals. If you know Japan, they're a very advanced country and they're not gonna let companies pollute what they do. So they're really advanced in what they do. And we, and we just try and be smart on every area. I don't think there's a company that probably makes a less carbon footprint than we do in, in our, in our, um, in our sex type of apparel that we make. Yeah, that I mean, for everything you mentioned, just sustainability as a system, I feel like a lot of people have, um, they, they, they just don't, there's a disconnect between understanding that sustainability isn't just, you know, the actual raw materials used for a product, it's, you know, the shipping could be even huge or something as simple as tags. Um, so I, I kind of. Yeah, I mean, the, the other aspect is our company is bur built virtually. So no, we don't have a home office. We, you know, nobody commutes to work. Everybody works from their house. Um, you know, there's so much that goes into like the planet and what you use, whether you're driving your car to work, whether you've got a different building that you're heating and cooling every day, you know, whether you've got your own warehouse that's empty six months of the year because you're not shipping as much that time or you've got act, extra space in your warehouse rather than sharing. There is, there's a ton that goes into it. And a lot of times what people promote, like you said, is the one fabric we use, but not nothing else. Yeah. I mean, at, at some point it's all got to come together. It can't just be like one thing. It's like a multi-pronged attack. So since you guys launched, officially launched in 2018, um, you're a pretty young company. Uh, the concept has been a little older, but what has your growth been like since you guys had that initial launch in 2018? Yeah, well, the first year was 
you know, kind of our learning year, getting out there, putting out product. Um, you know, it wasn't a big year for us from a sales standpoint, but we got a lot of product out there um, on people. Um, the second year, um, we tripled in size from our first year. Wow. And, uh, and we did that without, you know, we didn't do big media campaigns. We didn't do big, uh, we've never, you know, the way we got our product out there really was sending it to different people that are testing products. So we test, sent it to a lot of podcast people that test, a lot of YouTube people, magazines. We got like gear of the year, our first year from Runner's World. Um, we got a lot of blogs, put us as the best short in the market in our first year. So that gets a lot of eyes on you. And uh, in the second year, we added a lot more product and we found out what was working. Like I said, we tripled in sales. Um, this year, our goal was to triple. We're going to be a little bit less than that. We're going to be at about probably two and a half times. Some of that was when COVID hit, we cut back on ordering products. So we were a little bit short on product for a number of months this year because we just didn't know where the world was going. And us being so new, I just didn't want to load the boat on product because with Consumer Direct, there's no pre-book. You really have to, you know, we're looking at our fabrics almost a year ahead of time and ordering some of our fabrics um, a year ahead of time. So you're, you know, we, we I think, underproduced a little bit this year but you know for next year um, we plan on we'll probably more than double next year too we'll probably two and a half times and then we'll start um we'll start marketing also more we've just started digital marketing which we hadn't really done before because we really want to make sure the product was dialed in that we have our offering has grown a lot so you know we started with um one short and a seven inch um, with one pocket configuration another short in a seven inch and now we have that shorts, those two shorts available in three different lengths. Then we do two different fits. We do classic fit and relaxed fit. Uh, so our, our product offering, not just in shorts, but in baseliners has grown. So now, and, and we also, you know, we used a model. Um, I use a very, in my business, I, I'm kind of old school in that I didn't go out and get any funding and, um, and I self-funded it myself. And the idea of like getting it lean and getting it as profitable as quickly as possible then feeding your profits back into your company to grow rather than keep, you know, series A uh, financing, series B, series C, you know, there's companies up to series E um, funding before they're even profitable. And by that time, you don't own your company anymore. You've kind of given it away to a lot of people to help fund it. So for me, like I, I think slow is a good way to do it. I think learning as you go, uh, little mistakes can be big mistakes if you try and grow too fast, especially in consumer direct. So, you know, we're really happy with where we are, you know, at the end of our third year to be cash flowing positive and to be profitable um, would be great. And, you know, maybe in year four, I can take a salary. That would be pretty awesome. So <laughs> that's my next goal. Oh, well, I'm sure it'll come. I mean, it sounds like you guys are right on track and like having, you know, the roadblock of COVID of all things randomly in like the first couple of years to make it through and still be, you know, very much in the green. That's pretty incredible. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I think COVID was in some ways, you know, it got people outside. They couldn't go to the gym, so they were out running. Yeah. I, I think maybe a lot of new runners came in during COVID, people who had run that had stopped. And and I think for the running market, I think that's going to be good long term because once people get out there and see how great it is to be out running rather than sitting in a gym on a treadmill or, mm. you know, doing a class, um, it, they may 
you know, stick with running. So I, I think long-term it may be good for running, but you know, a lot of people unfortunately are out of work and, and the economy, you know, those people that yeah. wanted to buy new stuff are probably running in their old stuff. Unfortunately. Yeah, that definitely makes sense. Um, what has been the hardest part about launching and, you know, running path projects? I, I think we had two things. Like I said, one was a consumer direct model, um, really getting that dialed in and learning who our customer was. Um, you know, podcast marketing has been fantastic for us because there's so many really great um, core, authentic podcasts. And when you get people that are in the podcast that love your gear and you're marketing with them, you're getting really authentic testimony. So that that part, like finding your customer, how to market your customer. I think our biggest issue we probably had was just the tariffs that started um, because, you know, our shorts really can only be made in China or in Vietnam or some of the other countries. And China has the lowest minimums and we're not at a spot where we can move our production out of China. So our, um, you know, when those tariffs hit us, you know, we went from having a 23% tariff on our shorts, which was what was originally that we had to pay, to it went up to 43%. So um, keeping our prices the same, and then, you know, luckily our volume was growing, so we could get a little bit of price reduction, but, um, you know, I think those tariffs in China, unfortunately, it was, le- it, it, the brunt of it can't, went on small business. It didn't go on the big companies because big companies were moving out of China and they had the volume to move um, to Vietnam where the, you know, the, um, the minimums on Vietnam is like 3,000 pieces per color. In China, it was about 600 pieces per color. So even though we're way above 600 now, we're not at 3,000 per color. So, and all those factories are at capacity because a lot of the big companies have left China. And so there's not even the capacity right now to move to other countries if you wanted to. So the tariffs were a big struggle for us um, to kind of get over um, and kind of hurt our profitability, but we wanted to keep our prices the same. So we just kind of sucked it up a little bit. So those are, those are kind of the two things that were the, the real challenges for us. Mm-hmm. Um, now I wanted to ask um, kind of like a two prong question the, across your career. What were some of the biggest mistakes you've made? Uh, and to tie into that, what kind of advice would you give someone who would want to start a business in the action sport industry? Yeah. Um, those are great questions. Like I just, this January will be 30 years in my apparel industry business that I've been in it. And um, three different companies, four different brands, and I've learned a lot. And um, you know, and I made a lot of mistakes. I think that the number one mistake I see is that you um, you don't focus. Um, it's really easy. Like for for me and this company in particular, I made sure that we're laser focused. We make a running apparel. We're not doing running so that we can branch into yoga and cycling and everything else. It's running. It's running and running apparel that you can wear when you're not running. Uh, so it's singularly focused. Um, the product offering is really small and, and compact. Uh, and, I, and I think focus is a huge part of that. And um, I've been a part of brands before 
where, you know, you've got financial partners and they're pushing for all these numbers, numbers, and you go to numbers by it. Well, we're going to expand into women's when you're not really ready to, or we're going to expand into this other category. So for me, um, I've had those issues in the past where, you know, we've expanded too quick. We've brought in too many financial partners. There's too many people making decisions and the message and the vision gets distorted from that. So those are some of the mistakes I've made in the past that I've, I've tried to um, stay away from. Like our, this company was really one that I wanted to do where I would have the say. And I have two partners that are amazing, but, um, but we're not all equal partners. You know, I, I funded it and I, I have the majority and I kind of have the final decision. And after 25 years of doing this, I wanted that final decision. I wanted to be able to take the things and do what I believe in. Although a lot of my partner, my partners have great ideas and a lot of times we go with what they want to do. But, um, but this time I wanted to be able to do it myself and, and keep financial partners that are pure financial partners out of the decision. So, um, that, that, that's probably the number one advice that I have is, you know, start slow, learn, no matter what you think and no matter what you perceive and no matter how much you uh, research your business plan that first year, it's not going to go the way you thought. Um, you know, you can have a supplier that messes up the first run. You can have um, a material that you thought worked great, but when you start trying it on different body types, it doesn't work that well and you have to change. So I think go into it, have a great idea of what you think is going to happen and do your research before, but know that half of what you think isn't going to be correct. And by the end of the first year, you're going to be changing things. So I would say take your time. Um, don't get, don't extend yourself too far. Don't give up too much of your company. Try and keep control and, uh, and, and have a long-term focus. Um, one of the best advice I got in my career was probably about 10 years ago from a, a private equity guy who was working with me in Supra and he came on board and uh, he was talking to me as a CEO and he, you know, and he told me every day run your company, like you're going to own it forever. So every decision you make, you should think about like the 20 year, 30 year effect on that decision. And, uh, and it, it, it really is a great way because sometimes you're thinking how to get through that week or how to get through that month, which is sometimes important, but you really have to think about the long-term effects on what you're doing. So yeah, I've had a lot of great advice through the years and a lot of great people I've worked with, um, young and old that have teach me, have taught me a lot. Yeah. I think that's incredibly insightful. Um, the focus aspect too. I know that a lot of companies that we've talked to um, kind of, go through just throwing, you know, all these different things at the wall, seeing what sticks and then just really honing in on it. And it seems like once they really carve out what's working and just do that one thing, um, they've really pushed through like those early beginnings. Um, yeah, that's incredible. Yeah. Uh, I think it goes both ways. You know, I, I work with a lot of young people that have new brands and I, I do a lot of mentoring and a lot of advising. It's just part of my feeling of giving back. Like I feel like I had so many people that helped me that whenever I get the chance to help someone or someone needs help or advice, I, I always love to do that. But you know, what I see sometimes is people become, they come up with a product and they do really well with it. Like they, they hit it, they hit the brand, they hit the, the market, they hit everything. And before they really 
reached what they can with that, they're, they're off doing th- two or three new things mm-hmm. um, in that same thing. And, and they think that because they've done it one thing right and they've hit it right, that they can do these other ones. And sometimes they end up bringing down the whole company um, because they go too far. You know, I call it chasing shiny objects. <laughs> like you have one and you see all these other shiny things. And because success brings other th- opportunities, and you have to learn to say no to the other opportunities. And a lot of entrepreneurs can't, especially when they're successful really young um, or with their first company. They just think it's all going to be, you know, sometimes you hit lightning, you, you get lightning in a bottle once and you can't replicate it. And and um, you just got to watch out for that. Saying no is, is an important part. Yeah. Um, I think we have time for one more question. Um, if you could change one thing about the running industry um, or the skate industry for that matter, really any, you know, industry that you've personally been in, in your career, uh, what would that be? Uh, I don't know. I don't think I would change anything because they're all constantly changing. Hmm. I, I think that, um, you know, the skate industry is completely always reinventing itself. And I think, uh, you know, I, th- I think embracing change is, is the important thing that everybody has to think about. Like, you know, um, I think that, you know, the one thing that, that I, I guess my pet peeve sometimes being a product person is that a lot of times uh, consumers get, companies put too much emphasis on the smoke and mirror marketing and not a, enough emphasis on the product. And, um, and I think that if, you know, you can educate people on materials and on the way things are produced and why they're produced, I think consumers can make a lot better choices and they don't get caught up looking at a certain logo and just thinking they're going to have the best product because they have that logo. Um, and so I, I think that just in general, you know, innovation is important. Um, you know, I think that having, for me, like I think a lot of my success is, has come from never thinking I was an expert, always thinking I'm a student and, and I can learn something every day from everybody, you know, whether it's a brand new startup company, I can learn something that I didn't know, whether it's someone that's been doing it for 30, 40, 50 years, I can learn something. And I think the moment you feel like you're an expert or a leader and you stop innovating or you stop changing is kind of when you know, your ship starts sinking, even though you may not know it. So I probably didn't answer that in a direct way, but um, there's definitely some important things in there. (laughs) No, I mean, it's definitely kind of an abstract answer. Um, It goes back to that, you know, the age old question, if you could change anything in the past, what would I mean, changing the past affects the future. And you're right, these things are changing, that always will um but with that um just want to thank you for coming on the show today scott Uh, and for any runners listening or anyone just getting into running definitely check out path projects i've been uh using their shorts myself and have been loving it check them out uh scott thanks done thank you matt If you enjoyed today's podcast episode, then we would be incredibly appreciative if you could log on to iTunes and leave us a quick review. This really helps us get noticed by other podcast listeners like yourself. And if you know anyone that would benefit from this episode, then please share it along. Well, that wraps up this episode of the Ready Ready Podcast. We'll catch you guys next week.